morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to the pastor's Bible class from St. Paul Lutheran Church of De Pere. Uh, we welcome those who are listening with us today on KFUO Radio. We are in a process of spending six weeks looking at what we believe, the basic teachings of Luther's small catechism. Today we're going to study one of the chief parts, the Office of Keys and Confession, and if we have the opportunity, we'll also go into the divine service. Let's begin with a word of prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you kept us through this short night, that you've brought us to the beginning of another week. We have the opportunity to come together around your word and sacrament. We pray that this day you would pour out your spirit upon us. Open our minds, our hearts, our, our, our whole being to the truth of your holy word, that we might understand it, believe it, and apply it to our lives. Bless this study as we come in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. One of the most overlooked parts of our Christian doctrine is this office of keys and confession. Because our time is short, let's get right into it. What does the catechism say? What is the office of the keys? It is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. And where is this written? This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. Let's put this passage into its proper context right from the beginning. John chapter 20 is the story of Easter. It was Easter evening when the disciples were locked away in an upper room and Jesus came and stood among them. And he reached out to them and he showed them the wounds in his hands and feet and his side. And it says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He greeted them again, peace be with you. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then comes this comment. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's as if Jesus was saying to his disciples right from the get-go, brothers, this whole weekend, in fact, my entire life has been about just one thing. I was sent by the Father to die on a cross so that all of the sins of the world might be forgiven. And now you see, it's completed. I've risen from the dead. Now I'm sending you. Just as the Father sent me, I am sending you to deliver that forgiveness to the world. And if you, speaking on my behalf, forgive anyone, those sins are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness, those sins are withheld. He gave this authority to the disciples who represented the church. It wasn't the leadership. It was to the church. You know, the Texans have an expression. They say, y'all, and that means maybe one or more. But if you say, all y'all, that means everybody. This is one of those all y'all expressions. I give all y'all, the church, the authority to speak on my behalf, to deliver to the people what I earned on the cross. And you do that by preaching the word and by administering the sacraments. And it's for the church. So what do we believe? I believe that when called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular, when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ, our dear Lord, dealt with us himself. What do you believe? I believe that if the pastor speaks this word of absolution, my sins are forgiven 
just as certainly as if Jesus was standing in front of us. They are forgiven here on earth, and they are forgiven in heaven. It's a done deal. We call this the office of the keys. Why keys? Now, keys are something that we use all the time to lock and to unlock, to open and to close. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He said that right after Peter had made that confession. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were walking along, and Jesus asked them, what are the people saying about me? And they had all kinds of popular opinions. But then he said, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, representing all of the disciples, stepped forward and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he was absolutely right. And then Jesus says, it's upon this confession that you just made that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to my church this authority, these keys, to open and close the gates of heaven. When I was a teenager, my dad had a 1962 white Rambler station wagon. It was one hot car. And I remember the first time he handed me the keys to that car. And his first words to me were, be careful and remember who you are. So he gave me the opportunity to use those keys to drive his car. But along with that gift and that opportunity, there came a responsibility. In the very same way, Jesus delivers to his church the keys. The keys are an opportunity to proclaim God's forgiveness to the world. But the keys also come with a responsibility to use them wisely. What does this look like in pastoral practice? If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 9, remember that Simon Peter was writing to first century Christians who were living in a time much like our own, a time in which the world didn't understand Christianity, was kind of opposed to Christianity, where anything went, where there were all kinds of gods that people worship. Christians were being persecuted. And Simon Peter said to his church, remember who you are? You are resident aliens. You are in this world, but you don't really belong to this world. And now how do you conduct your life as a Christian in a non-Christian world? And so in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, remember who you are? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God said something very similar to his Old Testament people in Exodus chapter 19. He said, of all the nations in the world, by grace I have chosen you, Israel, to be my people, my prized possession. You are my own in an alien world. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, God chose one to be priests. Remember which, which tribe was to be the priests? The Levites, right. If you weren't from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't be a priest. Was God being honry to the other 11 tribes? No, by his grace, he said, I chose the, you out of the world, and I have chosen the tribe of Levi to be the priests. What was the job of an Old Testament priest? First thing we usually think of is the sacrifices, right? When people wanted to bring their sacrifices to God, they didn't take them right to the altar and offer them on, on the altar. They brought them to the priests who offered the sacrifice on behalf of the people. And when God wanted to speak to his people, there weren't loudspeakers blasting through the, the camp. God spoke to his people through the priests. 
And so I want you to think of the priest as kind of a bridge, a bridge between a perfect and holy God and his sinful people. When God received the offerings, he received them through the priests. The priests spoke on behalf of the people. And when God wanted to speak to the people, he spoke through the priests to deliver the message to them. In this passage, St. Peter says, remember who you are? You're this chosen people. He's talking to New Testament Christians. You're chosen people. You're my own possession. I've chosen you out of all the people of the world that you might be a royal priesthood. That is our role in the world today, Simon Peter says, to be a royal priesthood, to be a bridge, if you will, between a sinful world out there in darkness and a perfect and holy God. And there are times when we as Christians stand and face this holy God on behalf of the world and pray. Pray that God would forgive them and continue to bless them and lead them to the knowledge of Christ. And there are other times when we turn around as a bridge and we face the world and we speak the excellencies the praises of him who called us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Once again, it's all y'all. All you all are royal priests. With all of the blessings to forgive and retain sins, it belongs to the church and to all of you. So does that mean on any given Sunday morning, the first one in the door gets to do the preaching? And the second one in the door gets to do the liturgy? That's not how it works, is it? Out of all y'all, God calls one person and raises that person up and says, you as the called servant of the word, you as pastor, are to represent me on behalf of the congregation. We look at the office of the public ministry, the next section, the office of the Public ministry is to preach the word and administer the sacraments. The church calls. And that, boy, that is, that is so important in our Lutheran understanding of, of the pastoral ministry. As a congregation, you know, we've been through this process. We had a voters meeting. We elected, every member of this congregation was invited to be involved in the call process. We prayed for the guidance of the Holy Spirit that God would raise up one who would be senior pastor, one to be associate pastor, and soon, God willing, we'll have an assistant pastor as well, who will on our behalf preach the word of God and administer the sacraments, who will stand before us week after week and say, I, as a called, ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead, by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. When you hear the pastor say, I, a called servant of the word, that's, that's the real understanding. It's not the ordination that makes the pastor. The ordination is just a, uh, an understanding by the entire church, a recognition by the entire church that this man has been set apart, certified for holy ministry. But it's the call of the, of the congregation that makes a person a pastor. So in a very technical sense here in the church, um, we can look out, we have many ordained men in this congregation who have been certified for ministry, but they're not our pastor. Right now we have just two, Pastor Thomas and Pastor Thompson, and we're calling a third. So it, it's a fine definition, but we need to understand, because in our Lutheran circles, according to our Lutheran doctrine, as presented in the Augsburg Confession, Article 14, it says that no one, no one should publicly preach or teach without a divine, a regular call. It's that call that makes the pastor. And so 
The congregation entrusts this responsibility to publicly preach the teach and teach and administer the sacraments and deliver the goods to the people. Where is this written? Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And he, God, gave some to be apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It was God who gave. He instituted this office. It is a divine institution of the office. Nobody decides they're going to be a pastor on their own. God chooses God calls, God raises up, it's all God's doing. I love this passage, though, and I use it often, because what is the pastor's job, according to this, this passage? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In the Greek, there aren't any commas here. So we can read this one of two ways. Is the work of the pastor to equip the saints, do the work of ministry, and build up the body of Christ? Or is it better to say the work of the pastor is to equip the saints so that they can do the work of ministry so that the body of Christ can be built up? And the answer is yes. Probably both of those, but particularly the second interpretation. God calls pastors to equip you, royal priests, to go out into the world and do what God has called you to do as you go about your business every day, declaring the excellencies of him who called you out of that darkness into his light. This passage, 1 Corinthians 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ. Stewards of mysteries. Remember, as we talked about stewardship some time ago, to be a steward is not to be the owner, but to be the one who manages on behalf of the owner. A pastor is one who manages what belongs to God, the word and the sacraments, who publicly dis delivers those. He is a servant of Christ called by Christ on behalf of the congregation. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. What is a pastor? Literally, a pastor is a shepherd or an under-shepherd of the good shepherd. He is an overseer, one who in a sense, stands above, not better than, but over the top of, and oversees how the work of ministry is going, taking care of the flock. But here St. Paul reminded these, these pastors that this is God's church, that the Holy Spirit has called them to this important position to preach these words, to administer the sacraments. It's all God's doing. So we have pastors to publicly preach and administer the sacraments to forgive and to retain sins on behalf of the congregation. But every one of you can forgive sins. If your neighbor sins against you and comes to you and asks for forgiveness, as a Christian, it's your duty as a royal priest to announce forgiveness. I forgive you and God forgives you for what you've done. So every day as we go about our task, our life is all about forgiveness. Whose sins are to be forgiven, it says? The repentant sinners. Acts 3 verse 19 says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Who are repentant? Those who are sorry for their sins. We use the word contrition. You know what contrition is. It's when you've sinned and you feel that heavy burden come crashing down on you. And that weight is always, always there, and you lay in bed at night thinking about what you've done or what you've said. That's contrition. Feeling sorry for your sin. But then comes the second part, those who believe in Jesus. When you know that Jesus died for you, when you know that his promise of Easter evening is for you, 
your sins are forgiven. Whose sins should not be forgiven? The unrepentant sinners, those who aren't sorry for their sins, those who don't believe in Jesus. So how do we as a church handle this? What special care should we be, be using in, in exercising these, these keys? Matthew 18 is an important passage for the church, for every Christian. What happens if someone sins against you? Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Instead of stewing about something, if somebody has wronged you, instead of blabbing all over town about what they've done, if someone has sinned against you, Jesus says it's your duty to go one-on-one, -on face-to-face, and to talk about it. The goal of this is not to beat him up for what he's done, but Jesus said if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. It's always about reconciliation, bringing parties who are divided from one another back together again in the love of Christ. How different would your life be if every day you went about this first step that Jesus lays out? Instead of the gossip, Instead of all the complaining that goes on, if somebody done you wrong, you go. And you talk to them. Not to beat him up, but simply to reconcile with your brother, to help him see. Always, if he listens, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he won't listen, and this isn't just a one-time shot, if you work with a person and work with a person and help them in every way you possibly can, you know, you may be wrong. So you take along two or three others, and the group of you sit down, and you talk about the problem that's dividing you from one another. And if he listens to you, you've reconciled with your brother. It's over. It's done. If he doesn't listen, tell him to the church. And now the church get in, gets involved. We call this process sometimes excommunication. It's a serious matter. And the church today still has this authority to exclude unrepentant and unbelieving sinners. If every attempt is made to reconcile this brother or sister and that person refuses, the church has a responsibility. Remember, opportunity and responsibility. The responsibility to stand up and say to this brother or sister, you are wrong. You are no longer in a right relationship with God. Your sins are not forgiven. That's a serious, serious thing. It happens very, very rarely. I remember as a kid, we had a, a situation at the church I grew up in in which a couple ladies were were writing the pastor really hard and writing to a, a publication and broadcasting all of their complaints against our church. And time after time after time, the pastor went, the elders went, they did everything they could to get these ladies to stop, and they refused to do so. And so there was a voters meeting, in a sense, a kind of trial in which the, the charges were brought forward. The ladies were given the opportunity to respond. The congregation voted. Now, in most cases, our Constitution say that it needs to be a unanimous vote by the congregation. Every voter needs to say, yeah, that brother or sister is out of bounds. Some of the churches have lowered the bar a little bit. But uh, in those situations, the congregation who has this authority given by Jesus, says to that sinner, your sins are not forgiven. And I can remember the Sunday when our pastor then had to stand before the congregation and read the, the rite of excommunication, saying publicly before everyone that these people are no longer part of our congregation. They are outside the forgiveness of God, and we as a congregation 
recognize that they are unforgiven sinners. But notice the next step. There's one more here. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What does the church do with Gentiles and tax collectors? <laughs> they go right onto the evangelism list, right? They are the opportunity to continue witness that we never give up. We keep going and going, announcing that Jesus has died for them. Believe the good news. Repent of your sins. Receive the joy. We never, ever give up. Excommunication is part of that responsibility. We can't allow people to go on thinking that they are in a right relationship with God when they're not. That would be failing them to recognize their sin and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Serious, serious thing, but important one for us in the church. Any thoughts before we go on to the next session? Yes. Okay, the question is, what about a Christian who refuses to forgive an unrepentant, a repentant sinner? Yeah, that's a problem with a Christian then, isn't it? If a, a Christian refuses to forgive a brother or sister who is truly repentant, that Christian may not be in a right relationship with God. Does that Christian really know the forgiveness of sins? So it becomes a, a serious issue. One more time, the church steps in where the one or two or three go and try to address that matter uh, to help that, brother or, that Christian brother or sister be more forgiving. Absolutely. Well, what about this thing called confession then? You know, every, well, not every, this morning we used matins, but in all of our divine services, we begin with a service of confession and absolution. Confession means to acknowledge, to speak our sins before God, and absolution means to hear the words of forgiveness. So in our public worship services, we have this order of confession and absolution as we begin we need to know that we're in a right relationship with God. That all the junk that went on in the past week no longer stands between us and our God. We're forgiven. Now we can do that in a general kind of way and we all stand together and, and we confess that we've sinned in our thoughts and words and deeds. We call ourselves poor, miserable sinners, but you know, there are some times when we've done something it just eats away at us, and we hear the words of absolution on Sunday morning, but we can't get beyond it. The Lutheran Church maintains private confession and absolution. When I was a, a kid, I lived about a block away from a Roman Catholic church. All my buddies had to quit playing Saturday afternoon, get themselves cleaned up, go down to the priest and tell him all the bad things that they've done, if they wanted to take communion the next, Sunday, the, the next morning. And I used to think to myself, boy, I'm glad I'm a Lutheran. I don't have to confess. No, it is still there for us Lutherans as well. And we use it at the seminary all the time. I'll tell you more about it as we continue. But, but what is this thing called confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness from the pastor, as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by our sins, by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. No one is under compulsion to do this. But if a person is troubled by a particular sin, he can go and speak that to the pastor and receive absolution for that particular sin and know that he or she is forgiven. So what sin should we confess? Before God, we plead guilty of all sins, even those that we're not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, 
We should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. And what are those? Well, consider your place, your vocation. What does your life really look like? According to the Ten Commandments, are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Well, there's a good starting point. As you examine yourself in preparation for this rite of confession and absolution, in our hymnal, on page 292, there is a short form of confession. I teach this and use this with the men at the seminary. You would think, well, why would, why would anyone at the seminary have to go to private confession? You'd be amazed at how our young men and women at the seminary are under the attack of the evil one. That seminary campus is a battleground. And Satan is doing everything he can to disrupt those guys, those women, their lives. And they face temptation after temptation after temptation, and they fall again and again and again, and they, they're tempted to think at that point, I'm no longer worthy to be a called servant of the word. I'm a sinner. How can I go on with my education? And so I'm there as a campus chaplain to say to them, there is forgiveness even for you. So what does it look like? It begins with a penitent saying, Pastor, please hear my confession and pronounce forgiveness in order to fulfill God's will. Look at those last words, in order to fulfill God's will. When I was a kid, I was so foolish thinking, well, thank God I'm a Lutheran, I don't have to do this. But this really is God's will. God's will that... He would forgive me all my sins. And so I go to the pastor wanting to hear again my sin, that sin that is on my mind and heart, it, the thing that's bugging me is forgiven. That's God's will. And so I, the pastor invites them to proceed. And there is a confession here very similar to the confession that we use in church, the general confession, but here's the private confession. I, a poor sinner, plead guilty before God of all sins. And you know, that really would be enough. All sins. I have lived as if God did not matter and as if I mattered most. That's a first commandment issue, isn't it? As if God didn't matter and as if I mattered most. Luther used the expression, it's a Latin expression, in corvatus in se. It means turned in on ourselves. That we are so wickedly turned in on ourselves that everything is about me. That's what we're confessing here. I've lived as if God didn't matter. His word doesn't mean a thing. Jesus' death doesn't count. All that matters is me. My Lord's name I've not honored as I should. That's a second commandment issue, isn't it? My worship and prayers have faltered. A third commandment issue. So we've covered the first table of the law. Then it says, I have not let his love have its way with me, and so my love for others has failed. There's the whole second table of the law, talking about our love for our neighbor. If I don't understand God's love for me... And how can I possibly love others? If I don't know God's forgiveness, how can I forgive others? There are those whom I've hurt, and there are those whom I've failed to help. We talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. I've done things to people that have hurt them, and I've failed to do things to help people, and those are both sins. My thoughts and desires have been soiled with sin. It's not just my outward actions. My thoughts, my desires, my words, I've hurt, I've sinned again and again and again. Then comes an opportunity. What troubles me particularly is that. And here people lay out what's on their heart. 
We don't ask them to remember every sin. You remember the Martin Luther movie from a few years ago where, where it, it was said that Luther would spend hour upon hour confessing his sin, trying to remember everything that he had ever done. And then as he was walking away from absolution, he would remember one more and go back and do it again. That's not what this is for. If there is a sin or sins that particularly trouble you, you lay them out before the pastor. And then you end by saying, I'm sorry for this. Ask for grace. I want to do better. We use the word repentance. What does repentance mean? Being sorry for our sins, believing in Jesus, being turned away from the life that we, we were living to a life that is pleasing to him. This is the word of a repentant sinner. I'm sorry for this. I ask for grace. I want to do better. And so the pastor responds, um, God be merciful to you and strengthen your faith. That's what it's really all about. The repentant person says, Amen. The pastor says, Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? We go back to the office of the keys. We go back to Easter evening. Did Jesus really say your sins are forgiven? He gives us the authority. Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? The repentant person says, yes. The pastor says, let it be done for you as you believe. The pastor steps to the penitent person, puts both hands on his head, and says, in the stead, by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In that moment, the office of the keys is coming true. The sins of that penitent person are forgiven just as surely in heaven as if the Lord Jesus was the one who was laying on his hands. Sins are forgiven. The uh, repentant person says, Amen. And then the confessor, I think, adds usually some scripture verses. There's all kinds of verses. I try to pick out one or two a week that apply to all kinds of situations at the seminary. And I'll, I'll read the scripture and say, this issue of forgiveness is what scripture is really all about. From beginning to end, it's about forgiveness. We heard last week the, the account of the fall of Adam and Eve. And how God covered them, God forgave them for what they had done. From the very first book of the Bible, as soon as Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, it's been all about forgiveness. And now that forgiveness belongs to this penitent person. And then the pastor says, depart in peace. Go, your sins are forgiven. This is a powerful, powerful thing that the church has to offer. And, and we as Lutherans, we don't take advantage of it. We, when I was in parish ministry, we had a few people who would come in on a regular basis with something that was troubling them. And I would take them into the, into the church. I'd have them kneel at the communion rail. And I'd hear their confession and announce forgiveness. I worked very, very hard, however, to teach it to the young people. Imagine being, you, some of you, it's been a while, but um, imagine being a teenager and all the stupid stuff that you do and all of the guilt that you feel. To know that you can take that to your pastor, you can unburn your heart, and you can know that, that your sins are forgiven. The church today needs to emphasize this more and more and more. Do we need to be concerned about the pastor ever revealing what we've done? Are the pastor thinking less of us because of what we've done? The answer is no. There is the confessional seal. If someone comes to me at the seminary, I do not share it with any faculty member. I do not, not share it with any administrator. My office is a safe place where students can tell me absolutely anything, and it never goes beyond the pastor is the very same way in our congregation. They hear your confession. As a poor, miserable sinner, they know. And they have the responsibility and the opportunity to announce that forgiveness to you. Any thoughts about 
confession. Well, we've got 20 minutes to go through the worship service then. And since we won't have a sermon, we might be able to make it. Notice that, that our worship services, and we, we have five settings of what we call the divine service. Divine meaning God. God is the one who's doing the service. It's not us who are working here. It is God who is working. God speaks to us again and again and again. And we respond using God's own words back to him. And we're the ones who receive all the blessings here. Also want you to notice something that, that often goes by us. And that is the position that the pastor takes during the worship service. And I want you to think back to the, the bridge image and how there are times when the pastor stands with his back to us. And what's going on during those times? He's speaking with us. He's representing us before God. And there are other times when the pastor turns and faces us and what's going on there? He's speaking for God to us. So sometimes, just watch. What direction is the pastor standing as he conducts the liturgy, as he leads this divine service? We always begin with a hymn of invocation. Martin Luther said, Music is a gift of God, not of men. It drives away the devil and makes people cheerful. One forgets all anger, unchasteness, pride, and other vices. I place music next to theology and give it the highest praise. The Lutheran Church has a rich heritage of music. And that's not just one particular kind of music. Music. In Luther's day, it was Bach and organ music. Can God use a different kind of music in our time? Can it accomplish God's purposes? I believe it can. We have a rich heritage that we, we treasure, but we also take music from today, the sounds of today, and use it to convey God's, God's word to us as well. The service begins with the invocation. Invocation is a Latin word meaning calling on. We begin our worship by calling on our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talked about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. This is our God. But more than that, what are we doing in the presence of this God? What right do we have to be there? Well, the first words that God spoke over us were, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God claimed us to be his children what gives us the right to be in God's presence? The baptized children of God. And he has invited us to come and to call on his name. And so as we speak those words, I encourage people, remember who you are. Those are the words that keep coming up today. Remember who you are? You are a baptized child of God. And you've come into the presence of your heavenly father. What a blessing. And then we have the confession of sins. As we prepare for worship, the congregation joins. We all say in, a, in a, a, a general kind of way, I am a poor, miserable sinner. I'm not worthy to be here except for his invitation. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the pastor turns then and faces the, the altar with you. And we speak these little words, these versicles, from Psalm 124 and Psalm 32. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth, the congregation responds. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. The congregation responds, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is what God has said about forgiveness. And so as, as we stand together as a congregation of sinners, we use God's word to remind him and to remind ourselves, more importantly, 
It's all about forgiveness. The confession. We are poor, miserable sinners. We've sinned in thought, word, and deed. We're not worthy to be there. Then comes the absolution. Absolution calls on the words of, of uh, John 20 that we read a little while ago. The church has this authority, this opportunity, this responsibility to forgive and to retain sins. And so the pastor, in a general way, announces that forgiveness to all. That's preparation for worship. Then comes the service of the word. It begins with an introit. Introit is a Latin word which means entrance. It marks the beginning of this service of the word, and it's one of the propers. In our Lutheran worship, we have the ordinary, and then we have the propers. The ordinary are the parts of the service that never change. They're always the same. The propers are the part that changes every Sunday. There is a theme that runs through every one of these services. If you look at the introit and the three lessons and the gradual and the sermon and usually the sermon hymn, they're all laying out before us a theme. And so these propers change every Sunday. We're on a three-year cycle. And so you may notice that, that this particular year we're, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. And so all of the Gospel readings will be from Matthew or John for this entire church year. And all of the other lessons kind of fit in with that theme. And all the prayers and all the, the Psalms fit in with the theme of that particular Sunday. And so the intro it begins, it's a, a, a little psalm that is sung. We often omit this part in, in uh, our worship here at St. Paul's. Then comes the Kyrie. Kyrie is a Greek word which means Lord. As we, in historic times, it was at this point that the, the pastor or the priest made his way from the, the main part of the, the chancel into the part behind the communion rail. He entered in. And so the, the intro, it is the entrance song. And as he does that, the congregation uses this Kyrie, Lord. We remember the words of a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, who came to Jesus for healing, crying out, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And that's what we as a congregation are doing during this entrance song. We have then two songs that are interchangeable. Sometimes we use what's called the Gloria and Excelsis, which means Gloria, glory in the highest. It's a song the angels sang on Christmas. Do you know that every time we, we use that song, we're celebrating Christmas again, the, the miracle of incarnation, that God became flesh and dwelt among us? The other is, this is the feast of victory that we put in here. It goes to the book of Revelation where we see ourselves surrounded by angels, the archangels, this whole company of heaven, and they're singing this wonderful song that all glory, honor, power, might belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. We're singing God's words back to him, praising him for what he's done. Then comes the salutation. The, the pastor turns and faces the congregation, and he greets the Christians as Christians have always greeted one another. Lord be with you. And the congregation responds, and with your spirit or with you as well. We're, we're, you know, it's not just walking up and saying, hey, how you doing, buddy? It's Christians greeting one another the way the church has always done it. Then comes the collect of the day. The collect is also a changeable part, a, pro a proper. And this little prayer brings together the thoughts of the congregation with the theme of the day. And so you can often tell what this day is really all about by simply listening to the, the colic. For example, the colic for today was this. O oh God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. 
Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. There's always a pattern. There's always this address to God, a reason why we're coming to this God with our prayers, a very short sentence, what we're asking for from God, and then a, a little benediction at the end, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, or who with the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. It's always the very same pattern to this particular prayer, setting the theme for the day. Then comes the, the first lesson. As I said, we're on a three-year cycle. The, the um, pastor reads this Old Testament lesson because it's part of Scripture that we recognize as well. If you notice, today we talked about Abraham and uh, the faith that, that was given to him so that he might leave everything and go where the Lord intended him to go. That same theme was picked up in the gospel for today. The pastor ends by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds, thanks be to God. You know, sometimes we Lutherans get the reputation that we're unemotional in our worship. You go to Baptist churches, for example, and people are saying, praise the Lord, thanks to Jesus. We do the same thing, but we're, we're much more controlled. Alleluia, alleluia. Oh, we don't say that during Lent. Excuse me. We don't, you didn't hear that. That didn't happen. <laughs> but, but we're more low-keyed. We say, thanks be to God. Yeah, it's the same kind of response here. Then comes a gradual. A gradual is a psalm verse that leads from the Old Testament to the epistle. And then comes the epistle. The epistle is, again, one of the letters in the New Testament. And... It's, it's inspired as the others, the Old Testament and the Gospel are, but we read a portion of how the apostles applied the word to the church in the earliest days of Christianity. And then comes the Alleluia, except during Lent when we don't sing Alleluias. Then comes the Holy Gospel, which means good news. And we hear an account of our Lord's life, his ministry, his own words. And the congregation responds by saying, Glory to you, O Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. These are exciting times because we've heard from Jesus. We have a creed. We use the um, Apostles' Creed as we did today on a non-communion Sunday and the Nicene Creed on communion Sundays, a statement of what we believe, teach, and confess. A few weeks ago, I told you that I think we need to stand and say those words with our fists clenched. This is what I believe, and we need to say it with that kind of confidence so that we can encourage everyone in the pews around us, this is the truth. I believe it. You believe it too. Then there's a hymn of the day that reinforces the theme. Then comes the sermon. We talked uh, a few weeks ago of, uh, about law and gospel. Our Lutheran pastors are taught to preach both law and gospel, to speak the word which condemns us of our sins, that helps us to recognize that we need to be repentant sinners, that there's a problem in our lives. And then the gospel, the good news that God in Christ has forgiven us. I sometimes get up early in the morning, and I've complained about this before, and I, I listen to some of these online preachers, and they can talk about planting the seed and sending in your donation and how God wants to bless you with riches. And it goes on and on and on, and I never hear the name of Jesus. That's not Christian preaching. It's all about forgiveness. Remember Jesus said Easter evening, Everything is about forgiveness. And so here in the, the sermon, the pastor preaches law to show us our sins and gospel to point us to our Savior Jesus. He ends with the votum, which is a Latin word which means to you. St. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You've heard the word of God. Now may the Holy Spirit keep you in this faith. An offering is taken. 
We respond to all that God has done for us. We've talked about Christian stewardship, saying it all belongs to God. Everything we have belongs to God. Now we're returning to our God a portion of what he has given to us. We remember the words of Acts 2. The first Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. There was this, this communion within the congregation. As they were watching out and caring for one another, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Those were the marks of the earliest Christian church. An offertory. Sometimes we, we omit this part. We have a, a choral or an organ offertory, but we are offering God our hearts. We remember the words of Psalm 51, where King David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. He knew that he had sinned with Bathsheba. He had, he had committed adultery. He had been confronted with what he had done. And what could he do except throw himself on the mercy of God? And that's what we're doing at this point as well. We've heard words of law. They've touched our hearts. We've heard words of gospel. We're forgiven of our sins. Now we join King David in saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me that I might live to your praise and glory. There's a prayer of the church, a long prayer that includes all kinds of things going on in the lives of Christians. And if you ever have a concern that you would like the congregation to join you in, in praying about, call the pastor and say, Pastor, include a prayer. My kids have problems. My, my mother is sick. Someone has died in our family. Would you pray for us? This is a time for the congregation to gather together in prayer. Third part is the service of the sacrament. And it begins with, with a greeting, the Lord be with you. That's how Christians always greet one another and with your spirit. Then the pastor says, lift up your hearts. And the congregation says, we lift them to the Lord. That bugs me. When, when we are getting ready for the Lord's Supper, this is the most joyous time of the week. Lift up your hearts. And the congregation responds, we lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. That's what we're doing here. The congregation says, yeah, let's give thanks to the Lord. And then, then comes this, this proper preface in which the pastor says that it's truly good, right, salutary. We should at all times and in all places give thanks to God because of what Jesus has done. And therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name evermore praising you and saying, holy, 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 there is nothing unemotional about Lutheran worship if you're really listening to the words that you're saying here. We are surrounded by this great company of angels, archangels, saints. They're all around us. And we have the opportunity to join in singing holy, holy, holy. That's the song the angels were singing on that day when Isaiah was called to be uh, a prophet. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then we, we end with the words of the people on Palm Sunday. Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem? Crowds went out to meet him. They waved the palm branches in the, in the air, a, a sign of victory and hope. And they sang, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wonderful time. There's a prayer for those who are about to commune. We pray the Lord's Prayer. That's the model prayer. We'll look at it next week. And then comes the words of institution. There are four accounts of the Lord's Supper in Holy Scripture. And they have, each one has slightly different details. But in our words of institution, we take the important words from each one of those four accounts and we speak the words that Jesus spoke. We don't change anything into anything else at that point. 
We consecrate. We set this bread and this wine apart for God's saving purposes. And so we consecrate the bread. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. And then we step to the wine. After supper, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. What a powerful moment. Everyone in the congregation is focused on one thing. Here, bread and wine. But in with and under this bread and wine, Jesus gives us his very body and blood. Oh, and we're back. What's, what's it all about? Forgiveness of sins. That's why the worship service is connected today with the Office of Keys and Confession saying, what's this supper all about? Delivering the goods that Jesus earned on Easter Eve, on, uh, throughout his life, through his suffering and death. But he delivered to his church saying, for you, give it to people. It's forgiveness. People come and they partake. And we're just about out of time, but there's this dismissal where we're, say, we're saying to people, God, preserve you in body and soul. Now depart in peace. And there are prayers and versicles and responses, but there's this beautiful benediction. We always have a benediction at the end of the service. As we get ready to go back into the world today, um, we remember the words of Numbers chapter 6. God gave these words to Moses to give to Joshua. This is how people need to be blessed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now think about that. You're getting ready to go out into a hostile world, going back into the darkness. But you go back into the world knowing that God is smiling when he looks at you. That's a powerful thing to carry us through the, the week. So make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his, his entire appearance on you and give you peace. Amen. It shall be so. And it's, again, I get, I get bugged. I know I, I, don't, I shouldn't do this, but when we say, Amen. No, folks. You got forgiveness. Amen. Praise the Lord. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Go in peace.